Well, I thought we'd start with a little bit of a, a quiz, I guess, and uh, this will <clears throat> get us thinking. The Remnant likes quizzes, so just uh, several several things we could talk about. I just selected a few different um, items here. What did we su- suggest back way back in class one was the current population of of Israel. 8.39. Exactly. 8.2, 8.3 million people. So quite a bit smaller than the population of Canada. Really not a large country geographically or population-wise. Could you name four, there are more, but could you name like four major geographical areas in Israel? Okay, there's the desert, and what's that? What's the official name for it? Okay, the Nijev. Okay, very good. Uh, what was the other one? Sorry. Okay, there's the Mediterranean Sea, but how about just on the land itself? Yeah. Okay, that's the next question. Um, land, dry areas. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there's the Central Mountain Range, which runs north-south. That's right down the middle. So we got two. Okay, the, the Jordan Valley, the Rift Valley, the Transjordan Valley. It has a few different names. Basically, that to the if you're looking at a map to the right of the Central Mountain Range, and then the okay the plains. So the plains are called the plains, or the coastal plains, or the plains of Sharon. So flat, mountainous valley, and then to the south you have desert. That's how you remember it. So two bodies of inland water, Sea of Galilee in the north, Dead Sea in the south, and of course it it abuts other, uh, there's the Red Sea in the south, the Mediterranean obviously. Um, What's the oldest and continuously, we could add the word continuously, inhabited city in Israel? Okay, which is probably also the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Tell me a little bit about the Fertile Crescent and the peoples that have lived there. Where's the Fertile Crescent? It's in the north part of Israel. Okay. It's north of Israel, but it also includes Israel. Yeah. Yeah, it continues east through Babylon. Good. What are some of the main... So Babylon's one of the major cities there. Obviously, Jerusalem, Nineveh, Euphrates and the Tigris run through that area. Okay, good. Why is that significant to our study of Israel? Well, who are the peoples that lived there? They, they changed it up, but the most ancient that we know of were the, starts with an S, Sumerians, right? Non-Semitic, not related to the Jews, but the Sumerian, not the Samaritans or the Sumerians, the Sumerians. And then uh, another people group that sort of morphed with the Sumerians were, starts with an A, AK, Akkadians, exactly. So the Akkadians were sort of the next big powerful group and sometimes th- there was Akkad which was their capital and the Sumerians and the Akkadians sometimes in a sense um, shared kings or the king of that area might have been a S- more Sumerian or Akkadian or later became more Akkadian. What is a, what are, what is a Semite? Okay, someone from Shem and how is that significant to our study? Right, the Jewish people are Semites, but they're not the only Semites. Now we say anti-Semitic, we're thinking very specifically of the Jews, but the Semites were actually a larger people gr- series of people groups from Shem, according to the Genesis uh, account, back to one of the sons of Noah. And the Akkadians were uh, Semites, Sumerians weren't. Um, so those are some of the people groups. And out of this area, we find this 
person that arrives on the scene by the name of Abraham. So he comes out of the Fertile Crescent in what is also known as Mesopotamia. Okay? Tell me a little bit about, looks like I missed an A there. There should be two A's. Tell me about the Canaanites. Who were they? Where did they live? What's their significance? Yeah. Okay, so when you think of Canaanites, don't think of like one specific ethnic group. Again, think of a, like the Semites, think of the Canaanites as a broader collection of ethnicities living in Canaan or Palestine or Israel, depending on, obviously it switches names depending on the time of history. But those were the Canaanites. Um, just some proximate dates here. When would Abraham have entered Canaan? Give me a century at least. Or we could start with the millennia and then go to the century. <laughs> okay, around around 2000, probably around 2100. Okay, so around 2100, just approximately 2166, 2100 BC. Um, when did the Israelis live in Egypt? first time as a group so when you can backdate it from the exodus so when was the date of the exodus the, the date i suggested there's obviously some debate but one four four six okay so 1446 so you backdate that 400 or 430 years and you have them going into um, the land of, e uh, of Egypt f approximately 400 years before that date. Okay. Um, when then would the conquest have begun? So we now know the date of the Exodus, 1446. 1406. Okay, 1406. What about the other 40 years? Okay, they're in Sinai. So 1446. Then fast forwarding, what about the the monarchy? So we have we have a um, a period of judges. Remember, out of the conquest, everyone's sort of moving in, setting up camp, trying to run out the rest of the Canaanites. But then there's a lengthy period of time, about 350 years, where the land is being ruled sort of by ad hoc, what are called judges, rulers that just kind of rise up. They're not officially appointed. They're not kings. They're not governors. They have no true political status. They just sort of rise up among the people. But when, do the king, when does the kingship start? Okay, 1050 is when Saul is appointed as, as king. Now, moving forward then, um, we have Saul. Briefly, we have his son. Then we have David. Then we have uh, Solomon. Then we have Rehoboam. Rehoboam makes some bad decisions, but he's also living in awkward times. Jeroboam comes back from the south, from exile in Egypt, and he basically takes over the top ten tribe, the, the ten northern tribes. So what, when do we date the, the uh, splitting of the kingdom, the divided kingdom? Okay, 922 is when the kingdom is divided. So the period before that we call it the united kingdom or the unified kingdom to differentiate to differentiate it from great britain and then we have the divided kingdom in 922 so now we have the exiles notice plural so what the next big date i kind of want to you know get this in your head so when you're reading the bible you sort of have a basic idea of the timeline when are our exile dates and again we, we usually give a date but in reality it took several years for uh, the Assyrians or Babylonians to deport people. They kind of did it in waves. But what are the two major dates we usually speak of with regard to the exile? Uh, nope. 
Okay, seven, what was that? Close. 722 north, right? So 722 is the north Sennacherib conquers Samaria. And 586 is the south. Okay? Now, when does Cyrus issue his uh, famous decree for the Jews to return to the land? Okay, so 539 is Cyrus's decree. Again, it takes them several years to start to move back in. And then last week, so we have the... Uh, the temple being rebuilt when? Or we should just say built because it's a fresh build. When is the temple finished? The second temple? 516. That temple stands till 70 AD. So 516 to 70 AD is this second temple period. The second half of which is going to be the subject of our conversation tonight. And... Um, Tell me about the Hasmoneans. Who are the Hasmoneans? Group of what? Yeah. So they start off as a family dynasty. In and around when? What century? What millennia? What planet? Okay. <laughs> okay, no, they're Jewish. Okay, they're Jewish. So this is the, the kingship that most Christians don't know much about. There was a second kingship that rose up. So remember the Maccabees? So the Maccabees revolt against the Greeks, win, amazingly, and establish a new Judean kingdom called the Hasmoneans. And this is the descendants of, of um, uh, the uh, Judas Maccabee's brother. And that is in and around 175. Okay? And that survives, that kingship, family kingship, survives till when? What decade? Okay, 37 BC, or Herod would say 40, because he actually was declared the um, king of the Jews in 40, but it took him three years to attain it. But when he got there, he back minted his coins three years because he wanted three years under his belt already. So then you have the Herodian dynasty from there forward through, to, through the time of Christ. Okay? So tonight, this is all review. Tonight, we're going to look at the, the, the era leading up to the New Testament. And um, I'm going to kind of just review, give a little bit of review and a little more detail for a few minutes to some of the things we talked about last week and then really get into our conversation. So, by the way, a um, fellow that I know that attends a Messianic congregation that meets in the facilities of Bloomfield Hills Baptist Church in Bloomfield, Michigan, which is approximately a half an hour from here. I'm not able to go, but he did say that they're having a Purim festival this Saturday with a free lunch following. I think it starts at 10 o'clock. So if you're interested, you could probably just Google that. And it's it's free. You could go and see the Messianic Jewish congregation celebrate Purim, which is uh, the festival that celebrates what? the events of Esther. And then after that, they have a free lunch and stuff. So I thought, you know, if you want to sort of see it in action from a Messianic perspective, that would be cool. So in case you're not aware, Messianic Jews are people of Jewish stock that worship Jesus Christ. Um, there are people that are attend Messianic congregations that are not Jewish. Yeah, you like you could attend. You could become a part of the, the congregation. Um without discrimination. So yeah, you can. Okay, um, so life leading up to the first century. So now we're thinking about the century coming up to 
the ministry of Christ in the first century AD. So we're talking about the final century of what we call the BCs. So just a few things. The, the period of time from 332 until 70 AD, so 332 BC until 70 AD is often called the Second Temple Era. Now the temple was built in 516 under Zerubbabel. But the reason why this is called the Second Temple Era is because they're basically dating it from the Greek era onward. So Alexander the Great, roughly in, in and around 332, conquers the world. And this ushers in what's known as the Second Temple Era or the Greco-Roman Era. So even in my preaching or teaching, you might on occasion hear me say the, uh, the Greco-Roman Era. Well, I'm talking, generally I'm talking about first century life, where the it was under Roman rule, so the Greeks now had been beat, right? But there was Greek culture, Greek language, Greek concepts merged with Rome, and so it's Greco-Roman. Now, this didn't really happen as much with the previous kingdoms. So when when the Assyrians were in charge, and they got beat by the Babylonians, they were kind of like, sister people. So it wasn't that one really died out and the other took their culture. They're, they're kind of coming out of the same culture, even though they're different people groups in Mesopotamia. When the Babylonians got beat by the Greeks, the, the Greeks didn't take all of Babylonian culture and integrate it into their own. own. But when, when the Romans beat the Greeks, the world was Hellenized, meaning that it was Greekified. And so even in Rome, they were speaking Greek. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, but been familiar with Greek. The New Testament was written in, in Greek because it was like the lingua franca of the world. So we call it the Greco-Roman era. And as I've mentioned, the Greek language sort of became the common language. People would have still spoken their mother tongues and dialects. But the reason why this happened is that... Um, Many, many Greeks joined the Roman army. Just as centuries earlier, many Greeks who were out of work joined the Persian army. So these young men go off to war, spend several years fighting, and instead of returning home, they settle down and marry local wives. So all through Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, Palestine, down into Egypt, you have potentially hundreds of thousands of retired Greek soldiers marrying the local women and bringing from their childhood or their youth Greek culture into those areas. So they really Greekified, to, to make up a word, that area of the world. Now, Greek became, interestingly, economically depressed. And... This is one of the reasons why Rome was ultimately able to take over. Now, the interesting reason why Greek became economically depressed is because their, their art, the things that they could uniquely create to sell to other nations, were no longer unique. Why? Because there were Greeks all over the place, and these cultures were now familiar with Greek art, Greek products, Greek produce. They would just start basically mimicking it so now, because the, that area of the world was Greekified, there was nothing really all that unique about Greece. And so they became economically depressed because you know, they couldn't sort of produce things that were unique that other nations or groups around them really wanted because they already had it, because their culture had already gone out. Even though they were still one country, their culture had already gone out, and uh, the other cultures had mimicked their trade products. Now, when Alexander the Great in the 300s conquered uh, the uh, civilized world, for lack of a better term, he came down into Samaria, and he really didn't uh, meet any resistance, and then he moved down into Judea, and he didn't really meet any resistance there. In fact, Sanballat, uh, the governor of Syria, uh, Samaria at the time, um, basically paid him homage, and the governor 
uh, of actually the high priest of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Jadua, J-A-D-D-U-A, also paid him homage. So Alexander the Great didn't really have to, quote unquote, conquer Israel, the, the, the land that we call Israel. They just sort of said, we're yours. Tell us what to do. And what he did then is instead of leaving behind armies to sort of beat, beat on the people or pester the people, he would take Macedonians, which were basically uh, from the area we would now call north of Greece, Macedonia. He took Macedonians or, or Greeks and he settled key noblemen or officials throughout Palestine to sort of keep the peace and represent his rule. But he didn't really spend much time there. He took off on another military campaign. So basically to stop picture like this to simplify it he comes in they're like we surrender we're yours okay great here's a few government officials see you later and that's kind of how it came down so there was no resistance and the people just sort of gave into it now this is one of the reasons why as we talked about last week that from there forward there was always a lot of tension among the jews as to the uh the Hellenization they were experiencing. So if you remember, many of the Jews embraced the Greek culture. They participated in the games. They practiced reverse circumcision because they wanted to be able to participate in the Olympic Games naked like everyone else did. And some of them worshipped the Greek gods. And as a result of this, there became a rift among the Jews living especially in Judea as to what it meant to be Jewish. Some of them were really offended. They were Orthodox Jews. They wanted to worship Yahweh and Yahweh only and practice circumcision and all that kind of stuff. Others were like, ah, what's the harm? Let's adopt the culture. Let's sort of integrate. And because the Jews had never really, or the Greeks had never beat them up or never really been aggressive to them, you can understand how a lot of the people were like, hey, what's wrong with these people? They've been nice to us. We adapted in Babylon. We can adapt to Hellenization. But, as I mentioned to you last week, after the death of Alexander the Great, the kingdom was divided up by his generals. Now, he did leave behind um, uh, I think a disabled half-brother who was unfit to rule in his behalf and um, an unborn child. And nobody knew if it was the uh, a baby boy or a baby girl because they didn't have ultrasounds. So they decided to temporarily appoint a, uh, a regent to rule in his place until the child was born. The child was born a boy. But babies don't rule kingdoms very well. So they had to wait. And they waited and waited and waited. Well, when this boy was 12, him and his mother were poisoned by some of the enemies of, this, of uh, Alexander's family line and so his four generals divided up his kingdom and uh, you know what let me just grab my laser pointer here <clears throat> okay so for those of you sitting in the back it'll be a little harder to read but there's essentially four <clears throat> kingdoms so down here Remember General Ptolemy? There's a squabble back and forth between the Seleucids and Pot the uh, Ptolemies as to Israel. Discuss that. But basically, Ptolemy takes over the area, roughly speaking, that we would call Egypt. And his dynasty is established there. The Seleucids get the largest chunk. They basically take over the uh, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, all the way over into Asia. Okay, and then the the third kingdom is the Adelid Anatola kingdom, uh, also known as Pergamum. So this kingdom here is the third kingdom, and then we have the Antigonid kingdom or the Macedonian kingdom, which is up in here. So this is Macedonia. You're, you might remember in Paul's letters where he talks about traveling through Macedonia. So he comes, Paul comes up through here, and then he's going back again. And you know, at one point in Second Corinthians, I think it is, he's up here and he says, "You know what? I really wish that I'd like to, I'd like to come back and give you a second blessing on my way through Macedonia." 
he's, t he's making a geographical reference, and of course then some people have taken that to, to mean that there's a second blessing from the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion or something, but it, it has to do with geography. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit blessing you a second time after your conversion with his presence. But nevertheless, uh, this is the Macedonian kingdom. So you got one, two, three, four different kingdoms that are um, sort of ruling the world, taking over what where Alexander left off. Now, by way of review, two major events are affecting life in Israel. Really, whether it's the Seleucids or the Ptolemies, it doesn't really matter. They're Greeks. So again, the clash of Greek culture and local culture, the pluses and the minuses of Hellenism. Now, not everything to do with Hellenism is bad. I mean, every culture has maybe some technological merit to it or linguistic merit to it. But they weren't worshiping Yahweh God. We know that for a fact. So that was a problem. And secondly... The Maccabean Revolt, that has a huge bearing on life in Israel now for several generations to come. When the Maccabees revolt, they establish a kingdom. The kingdom lasts for uh, around 150 years. So last, um, last time I talked to you about Antiochus Epiphanes IV, what was he guilty of? He slaughters the pig on the altar. So he's the Seleucid king that comes <clears throat> and desecrates the altar. And <clears throat> while his act is an abomination from his perspective, what is he trying to do? He's trying to take Yahweh and put him into the pantheon of gods. He, he wants to teach he wants the Jews to believe that there are many gods. You can still worship Yahweh, but he's not the only God. Just You can put them up top in your pantheon, but he's wanting to introduce them to other gods. So, yes, there's some stupidity there, there's some foolishness, there's some guile, and through spiritual eyes there's some evil. But I don't think his first and foremost, his intention was to cause a war. But he does. And the people flip out. So after he's out of the way, the Maccabees win through a series of amazing guerrilla warfare tactics and battles and they then rededicate the temple to Yahweh God and establish the Hasmonean kingdom. <clears throat> now that Hasmonean dynasty then lasts as I mentioned until the official time would be in the eyes of the Romans the year 40 or 41 for practical purposes 37. And then the, Mac the, uh, the Hasmoneans are beat out by a new uh, dynasty that rises up, which we're going to call the Herodian dynasty, based upon the Herods. And that temple, the second temple then, you may have sometimes heard referred to as Herod's temple. If you've heard that language before, Herod's temple? Well, Herod didn't build it. But what Herod did is he substantially renovated it and updated the temple and expanded the temple mount drastically. So that's why it's sometimes called Herod's temple. We don't know exactly what Herod's temple looked like, but this is one of many artists' renditions that have been offered to try to maybe describe based upon biblical descriptions and other documents what it might have looked like. This was destroyed under General Titus in 70 AD and was uh, basically the stones from it were taken to build pagan uh, temples in the area and other you know, it takes a while to chisel out stones, so people just started coming, taking the building materials and reusing them. And then in um, in the seventh century A.D., the Dome of the Rock was placed on on this site. And I think, I'm not sure if it's this set of steps or not, but there's really only just a few steps on the Dome of the Rock today that are from Herod's Temple or the Second Temple. Okay. 
Um, no, it's like the second one renovated. So it's the third. Yeah, no, this was a, rent, a major update and renovation, but it wasn't a destroyed. No, they didn't tear it down. Uh, yeah. Well, so you have the um, the tabernacle, which is like your temporary temple in the desert. Then you have Solomon's temple, and then the second temple start built by Zerubbabel and massively renovated and updated by Herod. Herod the Great. There's several Herods. Herod the Great. And now we have a Muslim mosque on it and a Muslim mosque beside it. So there's two Muslim mosques on the Temple Mount today. Two. Um, they would probably just call like a, a synagogue or a meeting place for Jews a temple now. Temple Harshimayim. Uh, but... It's a synagogue, essentially. There, there is no temple. Yeah, a synagogue came up later on, like during the Hasmonean era, so that they could disseminate religion into the boondocks. So there would be places for locals to worship so they don't go running off worshiping Baal or other gods. And the uh, like, Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews today are all waiting for a third temple. Now, some of them, I think, believe there will be perhaps two third temples, one ruled by the line of Aaron, the priests, and one ruled by a descendant of David. So there's some different views there as well. But this temple, for all intents and purposes, stands for almost 600 years. Now, let's talk about Herod. So Herod the Great is the name that we give to the founder of the Herodian dynasty. Who is he? Well, Herod was by his ethnicity of Edomite descent. So the Edomites were living south of Judea, and they were descendants of who? Esau. Now, as with every people group, there's always other peoples mixed in. But they were essentially the descendants of Esau. That's the Edomites. Under the Hasmoneans, the Hasmoneans were able to conquer and subjugate the Edomites. And in that process, just as Assyria had done, maybe they learned it from them, Babylon had done, maybe they learned it from them. They took some of the nobles of the Edomites, brought them to Jerusalem. Fast forward several generations, and now you have Edomites, probably many of whom are now mixed in with the Jews genetically, uh, form key noble families in Judea. Okay, you guys following me? So Edomites... They're like an ethnic minority among the Jews of Judea. To the point that some of them consider themselves Jews. But the Jews know they're not Jews, just like the Jews know that a Samaritan is not a Jew. Well, in, over the course of time, one of the Edomite nobles is appointed as the governor down south in the territory that had been conquered by the Jews, the Edomites. So he's, his name is Antipas, and he's down sort of representing Jerusalem among his people group from generations back. And through a series of events, during the collapse of the Hasmonean uh, kingdom, a fellow by the name of Herod, uh, goes to Rome and he convinces the Romans that he would do a good job governing Judea. So they're like, two thumbs up, the Jews are causing us problems, we trust you, go for it. In fact, we're going to give you a title. You're the king of the Jews. 
So Herod now comes back, and he's the king of the Jews. Now, as I mentioned, it takes him three years to wage war in order to take Jerusalem and establish his kingdom. And this is when he mints his coins in 37, backdating his rule to 40, because that's when he got the official verdict from Rome. Yeah, you're, you're our man in, in Judea. So uh, the many Herods then that you read about in the Bible are essentially Edomites ruling the Jews. Now, a few more details, historical details. The name, I'll just spin my board around. You, you actually heard this name last week, but I'll just put it in perspective. I might have to just unplug this briefly. Oh, it doesn't? The plug doesn't work? Or you're, oh, okay. There you go. Okay. So uh, last week we talked about all the Hasmonean kings, right? And one of them that was a force to be reckoned with was Hyrcanus. So Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus, Okay, this is the guy that conquers the Edomites. He rules from 134 to 104, I think. Yeah, 104, 104 B, uh, 4 BC. He actually forces their conversion to Judaism. I forgot to mention that, but he forces the Edomites to convert to Judaism. So Herod technically worshipped Yahweh. And um, as the Hasmoneans continue to expand under the next ruler, his name is Johnius, the Hasmoneans, he's a 103 to 76. This is a key guy. By the time this guy dies, the Hasmonean kingdom is almost as big as King David's centuries earlier. So they've now expanded beyond the Jordan, north of Galilee, down into the south. It's, it's big again. This is, this is a pretty, pretty big area. But with military might, people start, they're feeling secure militarily. So what do they do? They start to squabble about internal issues, culture, religion. So now we have the kingdom of Israel reaching its max militarily, but it's probably now almost at its worst in terms of unity among among the people. And what this does then is this causes them to lose sight of the growing superpower in the north, which is Rome. And Rome in 133, so during the reign of John Hyrcanus, officially creates the the Roman province of Asia, so now they're firmly established in the east. And it's really not that much time before they uh, start to move into Palestine and flex their muscle. Now, the locals get upset with them, that's the local Jews, due to their oppression, the oppression of their governors and merchants, and basically start to fight each other, and this is this this is what opens the door for Herod to do what Herod did, and take over. So that's sort of the background. Now, one of the key conflicts during this period of time was between two groups that every one of you have heard of: the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Generally, what we know about the Pharisees is that they don't believe in a bodily resurrection. The Pharisees do. But further information: the Pharisees were more conservative. The, or sorry, the, the Sadducees were more conservative in their interpretation of the law. The Pharisees were a little more culturally savvy. They were always thinking about, okay, how do we interpret the text and apply it to our circumstances? So they sort of become, for all intents and purposes, the, the clergy of the, uh, the average Joe. And the Sadducees 
They're the guys taking care of the temple. They're the guys that are generally the high priests or concerned with things like that and all the technicalities. The Pharisees are more like the, the people's pope, right? Or the people's priests or the people's pastors, to use modern language. Well, a Rome, a Rome eventually steps in and conquers the Jews. They initially divide the Hasmonean kingdom up into uh, Edom and Judea. And then um, in 44 BC, Caesar, the Caesar of Rome, is assassinated. So the Hasmoneans then rise back up to try to take their lands back from Rome. During this time, Herod flies to Rome. He drops his family off at Masada. You may have heard of Masada for safekeeping for a period of time. He is declared king of the Jews, and he comes back to um, establish his rule. Now, in the meanwhile, while he's in Rome, Parthia, the Parthians decide, hey, we kind of like Canaan. So they come down, and they try to actually take Canaan in the 40s from Rome. So notice there's all, there's all these elements at work. There's the Hasmoneans are in ruin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees can't get along. The people are fighting over Greekification or lack thereof. Now, this should all start to sort of cause you to think about some of the conflicts that Jesus himself experienced during his ministry only 50 years later, 50, 60 years later. This is why fights between the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, a lot of debate, a lot of derogatory remarks against the Gentiles, the Greeks, okay? Gentile equals Greek in the mind of the Jew. Why Jesus was mockingly called the King of the Jews, because that was the title given to Herod. Uh, why the Sanhedrin was powerful, why there was a governor named Quirinius, why there was a Herod, why there was a Pilate. Okay, they were, this is all going to start to kind of come, come into focus as we move through this material. So the, the Parthians invade Judea and Samaria in 40. They basically kill you or mutilate you, the governors and the high priests. And um, the Romans come in, they take over. They see the Hasmoneans as rebels. And in their opinion, in their opinion, nobody's ruling Judea. So Herod convinces the Roman Senate that he should be the man in charge. Now, to sweeten his rule, this is Judea, this is Samaria. They say, why don't you just take it all? So he not only gets what he asks for, but he gets a whole lot more. Now, if you... This, again, uh, this is Udemia or Idumia. This is Edomite territory. This is where the Herods came from. This is where the Jews were living. This is where the Samaritans were living. And this little map here, which is very difficult to see on this, divides up the kingdom later on, these different colors. After Herod dies, each of his sons gets a color gets a chunk, and it's sort of divvied up again in honor of him, not out of war, but in honor of him. They each get a piece of the pie. So Herod then is, Herod the Great, as he's later called, is backed by the Roman Mark Antony, that you may have heard of, Antony. He captures Jerusalem in 37 BC, and the last Hasmonean ruler is Antigonus. So this is the last Hasmonean ruler. And that officially brings to an end the Hasmonean kingdom. So what happens then from 37 until the death of Herod in 4 BC? This is the Herod that sanctioned what is now in Christian theology called the Massacre of the Innocents which really probably involved about 16 to 20 kids because it was in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was just a tiny little town. Statistically, there probably would only have been a couple dozen baby boys there at the time. We sometimes have these images of hundreds. 
But nevertheless, this is the Herod that tried to have Jesus slaughtered. And um, this also proves, not that there's really any debate about it, that Jesus was born before the year zero because Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of come back to that dating issue a little bit later, and I'll show you a couple scriptural references. But here are some of the things that Herod accomplished during his time as king of the Jews. He issued currency, so he standardized the currency throughout his kingdom. He considered himself a Jew, and he actually considered becoming the high priest. But he knew that that wouldn't go over very well with the Pharisees, and he wanted local support. So he would appoint different high priests, but when they were loyal, when they were disloyal to him, he'd sort of just wipe them out. So a lot of guys had their heads lopped off under his rule that were high priests. So he, they were, he was a puppet of Rome, and the high priest was Herod's puppet. He did build the temple up. He also built and fortified Masada. So uh, I actually brought a picture of Masada, but I, I brought it for other purposes, so you probably can't, well, maybe you can kind of see it on here. This is Masada. So Masada is, the Dead Sea is over this way. In fact, that might even be it there, if it was a picture with better resolution. So this is Masada. This is where they, uh, the Jews held out in 73 against the um, Romans. This is the siege ramp. Notice this is a valley. The Romans filled this in with earth to get up there. It's a lot of dirt, wheelbarrows. It's probably like a billion dump trucks full. They then built a siege tower and were able to break through the first wall. The holdouts built a wooden wall. It is burned through that. And the um, thousand residents or so all committed suicide before they got in. I think there was three left, three people left in a cistern. Sorry? Sorry? They would have been associated with the Zelts. What was that, Joyce? Oh, really? Oh. Okay. A cistern, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. I think there were close to a thousand when they were attacked, but several died of starvation in the process or tried to escape. So this is hard to see, but if you're if you're on Masada and you come down the face of this cliff, right about there is Herod's palace on the hillside. And it, it's just kind of out there. It's it's actually really well preserved. Um but this is Masada. And that'll come up later on tonight as well, but I just wanted to point that out to you. This is where Her the first Herod had dropped off his family when he was going to Rome to try to uh, solicit support for his, his rule. So um, Herod then built up Masada. He built Caesarea, which is a harbor on the Mediterranean. So there's two, two places that sometimes get confused, Caesarea and Caesarea Philippi, different places. So Caesarea is the coastal city overlooking the Mediterranean. Most of it is underwater now because they had built a bit of a wall or something of that nature, I can't recall, around it to keep the water out. And then when, when it kind of went into disrepair, it flooded out the city that had been built there. I actually just read somewhere online that somebody found... Um, like bushel baskets full of gold coins from the Muslim era in the water. Now, the reason why that bothers me is because I was going to dive there one day, <laughs> and it would have been mine because I would have found it. And we actually booked it and everything, and then they're like, uh, so where's your dive insurance? I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, apparently in Israel you have to have dive insurance. You don't have to have that here. So we had to cancel the dive, and we never got it. Otherwise, I would have been... I would have owned Masada today. So, so. <laughs> that would have been my palace. <laughs> Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's like little staircases 
that you can go up the sides, but you can't send an army up there. You just need one guy that knows how to swing a sword to defend it. So they needed a mechanism to you know, launch a lot of men in all at once. And another place in the north, north east of Galilee is called Gamla, G-A-M-L-A. Smaller than Masada, but same, destroyed in the same time. Also, they built a siege ramp to try to get to the holdout Jews in the uh, in the first century. Um, so he uh, he accomplishes several things. He builds up Caesarea. There's a really cool um, stadium of sorts there for games right on the water. And he expands his army. He usually stocks it with mercenaries because not all the Jews want to serve him. He's an Edomite. In fact, the Sadducees get him really mad because they keep calling him the Edomite slave. So he kills them whenever he hears that. <laughs> he expands his lands, or his lands are expanded due to his allegiance to Caesar Augustus of Rome. So Augustus likes him. He's, he's a good vassal king. He just keeps giving him more. You can see it's expanding. He settles, he actually goes to Babylon and brings Jews back, or at least sends for Jews from Babylon to come down, because they're still up there hundreds of years later. And he settles them in more of the untamed areas, so they can kind of represent Jewish culture. He establishes officials throughout his kingdom, but he also offers locals a degree of autonomy, which is always a good political move if you want to be liked by people. So as a king, there's many things that he does that are, that are, that are successful, he, um, his kingdom was always at risk of relig religious division. He mostly followed Jewish worship, but he also was willing to build idols at his expense for different Hellenistic groups in the country in order to keep them happy. This, of course, infuriates the Jews. During his reign, the Pharisees outgrow the Sadducees and uh, Hillel who is a famous Jewish rabbi. He's actually a Babylonian Jew. He becomes the leader of the, the Pharisee section of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling religious class during this time. And they're actually quite successful. We're not sure what the Hasmoneans taught, but they may have been more like the Sadducees in their theology of the resurrection. Halal and the Babylonian Jews are so successful in teaching Pharisaism that even archaeologists have noted that the ossuary boxes from Jews buried during that period of time usually advocate some form of a resurrection. So that theology is now coming into the scene or coming back. And But keep in mind, it was still a debate during Jesus' time because it's mentioned in the New Testament, right? So this is the backdrop then to all of this. Herod essentially espoused what we could just call a live and let live form of Judaism. If you want to be a Sadducee, that's fine. You want to be a Pharisee, but be, be uh, loyal to me. He dies in 4 BC. Uh, along the way, he murdered at least three of his sons who ticked him off. And um, the wife that he stored away at Masada uh, decades earlier. He married several women, had several wives and different sons. But he um, he ultimately dies as you know he's murdering his sons and his wife. After his death, there's a new skirmish that arises. Who's going to take control? And out of that, we have this map. Then Rome decides they're going to step in. Okay, there's not going to be any monkeying around, and they appoint three of his sons to become the uh, uh, tetrarchs. So they're not quite kings. They're more like regional super governors of different areas. So here they are. There's Archelaus. So Archelaus gets uh, Judea, Samaria, and the coastal plains. So you see this pinkish reddish area? That's Archelaus. Now Archelaus only rules for approximately nine years. He's deposed in 6 AD because... He married a woman that was still married to the king of another country. And the Jews refused to follow his rule. The Romans could have enforced it, of course, because they were strong. But they're like, well, let's just replace the guy. So he's 
he's deposed and that problem is solved. But before he does that, he he is quite successful in killing off all the, not all, but the majority of the male heirs of the Hasmonean dynasty. So he obviously fears a potential uprising of the Maccabeans again. I want to take you to your Bible, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. One thing I would like to stress tonight by implication is that the Bible is historically accurate and that all of the events of the Bible square with secular history in the Gospels pertaining to this era. A lot of people try to dismiss the New Testament. You'll probably meet friends. Ah, it's all fake. It's all made up. Well, it must have been made up in the first century because it actually is quite accurate in listing by name and with a high degree of detail the political, social, economic situation that secular historians will teach us about. Um, So Judea is um, a corruption of Judah. So... Basically, when the kingdom divides, north and south, it's Judah. And over the course of time, it it becomes Judea, especially after the resettlement. And then that's what it is from there. And then that's where Jew comes from. The actual word Judea comes from uh, the the Roman word Judea. And it's spelt in a variety of ways, like with a Roman numeral or a Roman I. So they would have probably... I don't know what, how, what their accent would have been like, but something like Judea, Judea, or with a Y sound, Judea. Okay. So notice in chapter two, then this is the we got the wise men going going on. So we have Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. So accurate language, describing the t- the name of the land that are, is known in secular history books. In the days of Herod the king, that's also accurate because Herod was declared the king of the Jews. Uh, Herod, verse 7, summoned the wise men secretly and tried to get them to tell him when the star was going to come so that he could kill the baby Jesus. Now, what happens next? His dad goes to Egypt. Why would he go to Egypt? Because there's a million Jews living in Egypt. So probably distant cousins he could hang out with. Now, Herod becomes furious, and this is verse 16, and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem. Again, Bethlehem's just a few hundred, maybe a thousand people. So it's not a huge, don't have this image of, you know, 200,000 people, so there's like, you know, 800 baby boys, just a small town. And then look down to verse 22. Well, let's start with 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, now we know Archelaus starts to rule in 4, 4 BC, was reigning over Judah in place of his father, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district, Judea, Galilee was a district, of Galilee. And he went and lived in Nazareth. So this dates... It. This means that Jesus has to have been born prior to 4, probably more like 6 BC. Okay, And the reason I've shared with you before is there was actually, I mean, in, in this time there was no AD BC, but the, the, the Catholic monk that created the dating system that we now use made an error. Tried to date it to, he tried to put zero at the birth of Christ, but he should have gone back about six years. So this should be 2021, approximately. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so he he then is succeeded by four sons. So Archelaus gets Judea, as the Bible acknowledges. And then there's Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas... He gets Galilee and the Jewish Transjordan, the purple areas. The Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan River. 
He rules until 39 AD, but he's then deposed. So he gets quite a few years, but he's also deposed. Philip Herodias gets the Gentile areas east of the Jordan, and he uh, dies peaceably in the year 34 AD. Now, none of these sons was successful in unifying the Greek and Jewish problem that was rising up among the people. And this Greek-Jewish problem is still very evident in Jesus' day. In fact, it was still evident when Paul and Peter were squabbling in the book of Galatians over what to do with early Christians. Should they become? Should the Greeks become like Jews, or we should allow them to stay as Greeks? Should they get circumcised or not? The backdrop of all of that is the stuff we're talking about. The centuries-old now struggle between Hellenization and Orthodox Judaism. Archelaus is ultimately deposed, and Judea becomes the Roman province officially of Judea. It was already Judea, but now it becomes the Roman province. They wanted provinces, so Asia becomes the province of Asia, and Judea becomes the Roman province of Judea. Now, moving then into the lifetime of Jesus on earth, think about the spiritual climate that Jesus was born into. The people were tired of oppression. They'd been oppressed by a son of Esau, an Edomite. They had been oppressed by Rome. They'd been oppressed by, not the Hasmoneans, but many of the rulers before them. They'd spent time in Babylon. Their northern brothers had gone to Assyria and disappeared. So come the time of Jesus, messianic candidates were all over the place. Jesus was not the only messianic candidate uh, among the Jews. This book is entitled the Encyclopedia. Encyclopedias have a lot of entries of messianic candidates and movements in Judaism, Samaritanism, and Islam. There's pages and pages and pages and pages of messianic candidates, not all in the first century. Um, throughout this book. And uh, after break, um, I want to uh, share a little bit with you from some of these Messianic candidates that are found in this book. And a couple of them that existed just prior to Christ and and right around the time of Christ, okay? So Jesus is living in in an era that's ripe for reform, ripe for spiritual renewal, And we'll talk about that more after our break. But let's just uh, take five minutes or so to grab some refreshments, and then we'll, we'll come back together. I've also had this on mute. I'll just repeat everything I said since break. You guys got an extra hour tonight? So uh, during the um, few centuries after, or a few decades after Christ, um, Josephus Flavius is a young man. He's appointed as the kind of the military commander of the north, and he tries to secure Galilee against the Romans, but he loses in 67 AD. And the general that is sent by Nero, who viciously had persecuted the church in, in Rome, was a man by the name of Vespasian. And Vespasian's tactic is, I'm not just going to kind of rip through the land and take everybody. I'm going to go slow. And I'm going to go slow city by city. And after I capture city, I'm going to make sure it's rebuilt according to my standards. My people are in place. The government's in place. So he just methodically moves his way down through the country. Takes him three years just to get from Samaria down to Jerusalem. He could have marched it in a couple weeks but he's very methodical. He's moving down. Well, the zealots and the rest of the Jews, they just don't have that kind of a military. They're great at guerrilla warfare, but they they can't fight against such a a methodical army. Um, And they're totally outnumbered. So uh, Josephus is captured, and he's taken back to Rome, and he becomes a 
know what the word would be. Not an advocate, but a sort of advocate for the Jews, but sort of an advocate for Rome as well. And he basically lives most of the rest of his life there under the emperor Flavius, so he becomes Josephus Flavius, as a historian. And so you guys, I'm sure, have all heard of Josephus. And he lives there for decades more, and during that time was able to write all his books. His contemporaries, some of them considered him a traitor. Some of them felt that he should have given his life in Galilee for his people, but he doesn't. And, you know, depending on, you can judge him either way, but we're very grateful for the fact that we have a lot of historical records from him, which have really helped us to understand that period of, of time. So, um, nevertheless, Vespasian takes Tiberius. He takes Gamla, which is the great battle. He comes down, he takes the Jordan Valley, and from 68 AD, he starts to subdue Jude, uh, Judea, just town by town, area by area. In the meanwhile, back in Rome, Nero is defeated by the governor of Spain and kills himself. So the Roman elite are like, well, what do we do now? Hey, we got this great guy down in Judea who's proven himself in battle. So they call Vespasian back to be the emperor of Rome. So he gets on his horse and he starts to head back. But he hasn't captured Jerusalem yet. So he leaves his son Titus in charge of the army. And Titus conquers Jerusalem uh, in, uh, in two years. So he, it's, it's hard work. Jerusalem's on a hill. He builds siege ramps. The zealots destroy them from underneath. But eventually he's successful. He decides to starve them out so they're weak. And he's able to enter the temple and he burns it down. And in the Jewish calendar... I don't know what month this would be in ours, but on the 9th of Av, he burns the temple down and Jerusalem, and this becomes a Jewish day of mourning. In 70 AD, yeah. So that is the key date. So the, the temple is destroyed. The second temple is now rubble and remains that way for 600 years or so. Now, over the next three years, other cities fall, and Masada, picture I showed you, is the last to fall in and around 73 to 74 uh, AD. And that is mostly composed of Essenes and Zealots. And so that kind of brings to the end that real period of Messianic awareness and hope. And, and, and uh, this is what is known as the, the end of the First Roman War. So from the basically battles that men like Josephus fought in the north through to the destruction of Masada, that um, seven, eight-year period, that's known as the period of the First Roman War. There would be other times when the Jews would rise up against the Romans, but that kind of brings to the end that period of time. So finally then, Rome decides, like, we, get, we can't let this happen again, so we're going to do things differently. We're not appointing proconsuls, we're not sending governors, we're not appointing Herods, we're moving in an army. So they move.